Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey team, welcome to the Prophecy Playbook. I'm your host, Jacob Mook, and as always, we'd like to get started with the word of prayer. Father God, we humbly approach your throne and we ask for your blessings. Father, thank you for this day and all of the amazing things that you've given us. And as always, we dive into the word with an open mind and open heart, and as always, with your spiritual discernment to guide us, Father. Lead us in the right direction, and in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we got together and we talked about the land of Togarma as it is Turkey today. Now, I want to go into Ezekiel 38, verse 5. We're going to start off with Persia. Literally the first word, Persia. But let's read a little bit of context to give us what we're talking about here. We're starting off with Ezekiel 38, 4. And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Verse 5, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Verse 6, Gomer and all his bands and the house of Togarma of the north quarters and all his bands and many people with thee. All right, so we just listed a bunch of players, and we've mentioned this already, but the land of Persia, verse 5. Let's just start there and see where we go next. It's understood that the book of Ezra, which makes mention of the land of Persia when it talks about rebuilding the temple, which we're going to get to here in a second, the book of Ezra was written approximately in the year 399 BC. Now, that's 150 years after the founding of the kingdom or the empire of Persia, as we know it today, began. Uh, Persia, as a matter of fact, is actually a mistranslation of the word Persis or Persus of the original land itself. And basically, when Cyrus the Great took over the Median Empire, basically his entire land started to get called off of the city-state where it was founded, which would have been Persis. We could see this throughout ancient history as well when we talk about the uh, Athenian Empire or something, right? But Athens itself was one city-state. But when they conquered, everything they conquered became known as Athens. Or Rome, for instance. Rome itself was one city. But you look at the Roman Empire that was based off of that one city-state, that's how we get the connection. So, Persis or Persas, or however you would like to pronounce it, whatever translation you're looking at, became known as the Persian Empire in the year 550 B.C., And we have this guy, Cyrus the Great, right? When he took over this land of the Medes, he didn't come over and take over and try to uh, 
be cruel to his subjects. In fact, he forgave all of those that fought against him in the war of the takeover. He was very open to their religious ideologies and their belief systems. He tried to do everything he could to be very open to all, especially for the time in which he lived. This was a massively progressive and widely unheard of principle as far as taking over and conquest. Adopting principles from your newly found subjects and being very open to their cultural backgrounds, religious ideologies, and everything else is relatively unheard of throughout the vast majority of human history. So Cyrus then goes on to conquer the Babylonians in 539 BC, and when he does, he frees their Hebrew population and goes as far as to rebuild the Temple of Solomon, which stood until 70 BC when the Romans tore it down. The temple stood from 516 BC to 70 AD. Okay, that is 586 years that that temple stood as the holy place of God's chosen people. And Cyrus funded the building project. That is insane. So this guy was very open to new ideas, and he was not seen as some sort of crazy tyrant. He, he took over and helped everybody prosper. So Cyrus, this incredible leader, ended up making an empire go from the Indus Valley to the Hellespont. Okay, it went all the way to the far ends of Turkey. Then his son came along and this even pushed into the Horn of Africa through Egypt. And this was called the Achaemenid Empire. And so that's what people usually think of when they think of the uh, stereotypical Persian Empire. Right. Well, it always has a negative connotation. And the reason for that pretty much started with Cyrus the Great's son, Cambyses, because when he did take over Egypt, he did not share his father's love of different cultures from around the world. Instead, he killed the sacred calf and he started doing things like, you know, imprisoning their king, burning the mummies of their ancestors, looting the temples, you know, the things that you would expect from a typical conquest type of human being. But that's neither here nor there. It was still a part of the Achaemenid Empire. But to be honest with you, Cambyses, uh, his antics kind of led him to get assassinated. And then next thing you know, we have this guy named Darius that would put them back on track to being the cultural hub that they became because the Silk Road, keep in mind, went through this area as well. This is a massive culture hub. They have to either be A, open to everybody's ideologies and just kind of be free-flowing, or B, section themselves off and, well... (laughs) Oh, we'll get there. Anyway, moving on. All that being said, the Persian Empire did phenomenally, right? And they cultivated a massive education and enlightenment movement, okay? And and we're going to get to that as well because when you look at the golden age of Islam, it happened in Persia, okay? But then when you look at what happened next, so in 498 BC, the Ionian Peninsula decided to revolt against Persia, right? The Ionians became what we now know as the Greek states. And here's the thing. Greece was the forefathers of Western society because the Greek philosophy went into what founded Rome, right? Rome tried to idolize herself off of Greece. So the narrative that Greece tried to push would have been the narrative that Rome tried to push. And when you talk about westward civilization, in a nutshell, Western society is based off of a Roman model, and that's been proven multiple times. So if the Greeks had this mentality of these evil Persian tyrants that are trying to oppress them, In reality, and I'm not saying one way or another on this, but looking at the history, in reality, the Ionian states did not like the more or less governors. There's another word for it, but basically the 
uh, figureheads that Persia had placed over them to be their essential uh, governors. They didn't like them. They wanted to revolt against Persia. And so now their narrative got pushed. They ended up winning this war. That's how we see this as the evil Persians that we know of from popular sagas and stories and up until the movie 300, for instance. The Ionian states would see them as these horrible uh, tyrants that were over them. And fine, if you want to say that they were fighting for their own independence and freedom, I could understand that. But oppressive tyrants? I don't really see that. You could look up the Cyrus Cylinder, as a matter of fact, and it's an inscription on this massive stone cylinder that talk all about what kind of advancements that Cyrus the Great, along with other Persian leaders, have done throughout history. They were extremely big with women's rights. They were extremely big with law and order, they were big with education, they were big with engineering. They were trying to build an empire and build a solid culture. They've no record except for the very few scarce examples, one of them being Cyrus' son, of them being tyrants. Other than that, they were very open and, and very forthcoming and welcoming to new ideas and, and situations. So whenever Ezra was writing about the Persians, he was talking about them in such high regard because Cyrus was the reason that the second temple was even built. So when they're talking about Persia attacking Israel in Ezekiel 38, it's talking about somebody that at the time they viewed with high regard. Now, I feel like I would be remiss to, to not mention the fact that the Persian religion at this time was something called Zoroastrianism, which is actually still practiced today by a small group of people, but it's still practiced and by definition is the world's oldest practiced organized religion. Zoroastrianism is a very, very complex monotheistic religion, but it puts a heavy emphasis on the, uh, the I guess, in a sense, the duality of right and wrong, of good and evil. And there are those, and I'm, I am not one of them, but there are those that make the comparison to say that early Judaism and Christianity and Islam even take their notes from Zoroastrianism in this regard. But that's neither here nor there. However, I do think that it's incredible that Cyrus the Great built a temple for a now freed population of people. He had no debt to these people, and he still went out of his way to build a massive temple to these insanely specific specifications just to make his new citizens love him. And I mean, it wasn't even his religion, man. He just did that just because. That is incredible to me. Truly, I believe God moved in this man's heart to make him do that. Now, let's continue. Now, the Persian Empire finally met its match under this guy, Alexander the Great. Maybe you've heard of him. Long story short, he took over Persia. Then it fell to the Seleucid Empire. Then finally, the Parthians took it back over. And this is in the year 140 to 120 BC that the Parthians had their run on this Persian Empire. Now, the Parthians ruled around the same time that the Roman Empire made their appearance in a very big way around the Mediterranean. The Parthian Empire now had this thing called the Silk Road. And it was now a massive trade network from the far east to the far west. Everybody loved the trade goods, silk included. The Romans loved Chinese silk. The Parthians got extremely wealthy from the Silk Road in this area for years. But eventually, the Roman Empire and the Parthians finally got into a little bit of a skirmish, and from 66 BC to 217 AD, they basically had a essentially a two-century stalemate. The Parthians did kill Crassus, who was a very top Roman general. There was a big clamor for other generals to take his spot. Long story short, the horse archers, kind of the Romans and their hardcore battle structures, could not defeat them in this realm. However, the Persians were known to be a very capable military force. So when we talk in the book of Ezekiel of the Persian military coming down, horses and archers and bows, they were known for their horse archers at this time. In the end, the Parthians finally 
after years and years of fighting, could not withstand any longer. And in 266 AD, the Sassanid Empire pretty much moved in and took over the Parthian side of everything, and now we have the Sassanid Empire of Persia. Now, the Sassanid Empire was all well and good, except for the fact that they made Zoroastrianism the state religion and started seriously persecuting any citizen of their empire that was not Zoroastrianist as a whole. And also, if you want to look up some more history on this area of the world from this time period, go ahead and look up Khosrow. He was arguably the best celebrated uh, emperor or shah of the Sassanid Empire, and you could see why if you look at his military track record. However, eventually all that fighting did make it a little more difficult to support his own borders. Muhammad and his retinue that made their way in in 633 AD. The Sassanid Empire was essentially crippled in one decade and completely wiped off the face of the earth in two. So 20 years of, of Muhammad's influence in this country was, or this empire, was essentially no more. Persia went back and forth through different Islamic caliphates and empires for a very long time, up until a guy named Genghis Khan, who you've maybe heard of, came through and invaded in the year 1256 AD. That pretty much shook up everything for everybody, honestly, if you look at the conquest that this dude made across the entire known world at the time. However, in the year 1501, the Safavid Empire emerges from the Azerbaijan and quickly conquers Persia. Now, during this time, Shia Islam became the state religion of Persia. And at this point, the country went into different empires and different dynasties. And you could track this all the way until 1935 when Reza Shah pretty much said that he wanted everybody to stop using the word Persia and basically unified this area as a new nation of Iran. However, not every country initially started calling them by this name. America was one of the first ones to jump on this. However, the United Kingdom actually didn't start acknowledging it as the word Iran until the mid-70s. However, Persia, the ancient land, is Iran today. And next week, we are going to dive into what this area of the world looks like today. We're going to talk about the geopolitical situation that goes on there and what it would look like for them to attack Israel. So buckle up for that one. But as of now, we are going to wrap up this episode, team. And as always, we'd like to wrap up with a word of prayer. Father God, we humbly approach your throne and we, as always, ask for your blessings, Father. Thank you for this amazing day and thank you for your word. But above all else, Father, thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins so that we may have everlasting life with you, Father. We thank you, Father, and we ask this all in your precious and holy name. Amen. All right, team, I'll see you all next week. Take care.